The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911. It is 5.06 on the Central Coast on this Tuesday, January 3rd, 2022. I'm Dave Congleton. A uh, couple reminders. Tomorrow we have the mayor of San Luis Obispo, Erica Stewart, will be here. On Friday we have uh, brand new county supervisor Jimmy Paulding as part of our 31st anniversary broadcast. Uh, next Monday, Debbie Peterson is going to be with us, the former mayor of Grover Beach. She's written a, a book about how to be an effective city council person. Uh, we're just busy. Uh, we're with you weekday afternoons from 3 to 7 right here on KVEC. In about an hour, we're going to feature the interview with uh, Lucy Wickstrom, where she talks about her favorite museums in the United States. This hour, first-time guest. We love when we reach out and bring you new voices to the community. Dr. Shams Tamvir is an assistant professor of transportation in the College of Engineering at Cal Poly. He knows a lot about transportation, and that's a topic I think that's very important as we welcome the professor to the show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Nice Dave. to meet you. Thanks for coming here. Nice to meet you, too. Ah, uh, Boy, so much I want to ask you. First, I'm just curious, how did you get interested in the issue of transportation? So I was born in a country uh, in Southeast Asia called Bangladesh, okay. and that country had a lot of people and you know, like when a lot of people are living in a small land, that creates a lot of traffic issues and transportation issues. And I wanted to solve those. I, it was fascinating to me to learn about how people move around from one place to another. I did my, to my uh, did my undergrad in civil engineering, and I get to learn a little bit about transportation. I wanted to dig deeper, so I came for graduate studies in USA in 2013, and uh, and. As you know, like USA is a, is a land of dreamers, and it has yeah. a lot, lot of opportunities, a lot of problems, and I learned so much about transportation in the last 10 years. Um, I, I must say I'm blessed, and I, I, I am also excited about the opportunities that the transportation industry has for, for the United States for the next decade. And, and you came here in 2020? I came to San Luis Obispo in 2020. All right, so you've been a couple of years now. So in, in what were your general impressions of the Central Coast from a transportation point of view? Uh, it's interesting because, you know, like from outsiders, when we think about California, they they have an image of Los Angeles or, uh, you know, like the, the Bay Area in their mind, uh, right. the big sprawl of highways, suburban areas, things like that. But, you know, like Central Coast is quite different than the, the other big cities in California. So we see that on one end, we want to preserve the way uh, that these smaller communities like San Luis Obispo, uh, Morro Bay, Pismo, like these cities that we see around us, we want to preserve the characteristics of those cities. Right. But at the same time, the California population is growing and, and, and we have to accommodate this new influx of people and like that, it, it's kind of getting back to these these issues of congestions, road safety, and 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 overall the sustainability of transportation systems is getting to be a big issue as we accommodate more people in our smaller land. But so far, I I, I feel like the Central Coast 
towns have tried to preserve that small town feeling already that is present here. Uh, but it's, you know, like... But that's, it, not necessarily, that's not necessarily a good thing, is it, Professor? Uh, that's an interesting question, yes. Um, so, you know, like, whenever we say that we want to preserve uh, our small town feeling, that comes with some some sort of, like, side effects, I call it, right? So you you have on one end... Um, you are not allowing as much growth of traffic by building more highways and more uh, more roadways and things like that. Mm. Um, and, and that uh, might cause, you know, like the more congestion, uh, more safety hazard and things like that. So, um, yeah, so that's not always a good thing. But the, but the good news is we now have uh, the, the science of transportation is matured enough to know that there are other ways. So for example, the in the last 10 years, we now know about complete streets, which is basically the fact of making the other mode of transportation, which are not auto, like bicycles and pedestrians, and make them uh, make our roadways more accessible for those modes, right? So that way, we can actually uh, actually make our streets more sustainable in that way. We can accommodate more people, but don't have to spend that much money. If those of us driving cars are willing to share the road with those who ride bicycles. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. We can get into that. Anyway, oh boy, there's so much I want to ask you. I want to start with, with you were educating me when you, when you walked in the studio here. There is a difference between traffic circles and roundabouts. And this is all I know. I've been here pretty much as long as you've been alive. And... <laughs> The thing that has changed the most in the last five years for me from a traffic perspective is that we have these little round circles instead of stoplights. So are these traffic circles or are they roundabouts? And what's the difference? So, Dave, it's, it's, it's a great question, actually. At the beginning, people are all confused about, like, what's roundabout, what's the rotary, and what's, a, uh, what's like, the traffic circles, yeah, right? Yeah. So traffic circles are what we call the kind of the granddads of our modern-day roundabouts. So uh, in 1905, we had our first uh, traffic circle uh, in New York City, Columbus Circle, and it yeah, was yeah, designed yeah. by Williams Phelps Eno. He was a great uh, city designer and transportation designer in general. And, and then uh, we realized that um, traffic circles, because they don't really control the speed of the entering vehicle, that was causing a lot of incidents or crashes at the at those intersections. Mm -hmm. So they, um, in the 1960s, uh, in the United Kingdom, they developed the new type of traffic circles, or they call it roundabout, that has kind of uh, a gentler way of entering the traffic into the circles. And also it controls the speed of the entering vehicle in such a way that uh, it's actually much more safer for the vehicles driving there and also the pedestrians and the bicyclists that might be using the similar facilities. So what we have in San Luis, basically, like on Orchid uh, and down San these are all roundabouts. So near Orchid, um, so if you see the bigger ones, they are the regular roundabouts, mm -hmm. but you'll also see smaller uh, size of roundabouts. Those are called turbo roundabouts or mini roundabouts, and these are usually uh, placed in the urban areas, you know, like where sure. there are shopping malls. You might see near the San Luis Ranch area, there are a couple new right. mini roundabouts. There are three of them. 
Three yep. of them have been put in. Exactly. All right. Why is that such a good idea, Professor? Uh, well, the, the, the main motivation is coming from safety because uh, roundabouts, we have, we have been studying roundabout in USA for about more than 30 years now. They have been found to be reducing the fatal crashes by about 90%. 90% reduction in fatal. Crashes. 90% reduction in fatal crashes because you, you see that hmm. there is no way you can have a, a, a 90 degree angle collision or in kind of a head to head collision that you might see in a, in a regular intersections. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and so it, it almost cuts down the level of fatal crashes. But we also see that some of the non-federal crashes, like the single vehicle crashes, or sometimes drivers may be confused uh, navigating these new systems, especially in areas which do not have many roundabouts, we might see some single vehicle crashes going up. Uh, but those are mostly non-federal. I'm thinking of the case not that long ago in Los Angeles where a nurse, uh, I forget the cause, but she ran a stoplight, hit a car, killed, I believe, six people. That wouldn't have happened if that was a roundabout, most likely. Most likely, yes. So those kind of accidents can be prevented or reduced. It's, it's, it's proven to be reduced. So actually, when, when the Central Coast Transportation Planners, when they are thinking about reducing, making our roads more safer, roundabout is actually a very important tool that they have to reduce the crash. And yet on 227, uh, not, not long ago, they proposed putting in, I think, two roundabouts, and those were shot down because the residents did not want the roundabouts on 227. So that's, that's the age He's frustrating, he's shaking his head. He's shaking his head. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, like, it's, it's a daunting proposition when these kind of new proposals are being done in a new community, which is not really familiar with this newer concept. Right. And we have seen similar kind of pushbacks from the communities whenever we are building new bicycle lanes and uh, complete streets that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and, 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 you know, like, it's the community. I think uh, the way the transportation planner should conduct this job is that they need to reach out to people more and more often. Uh, and I, I know, Dave, like your uh, channel and this media and local newspapers, we all should be uh, making uh, conversations about these issues, like talking about crashes that might we might prevent, talking about uh, efficiency, uh, sustainability of a transportation system, because at the end, we all are users in our in own system. See, I like traffic circles. I'm a big advocate of it. I was telling you before you before we started, I've been to Iceland. And in Iceland, it's like 90% traffic circles. And if you don't like traffic circles, don't go to Iceland, because that's <laughs> all. But the traffic just keeps going. You don't have to stop. You just go in, you circle, you keep going. Yes, and and you know, like the more and more of these traffic circles or the or these roundabouts that you see, the more you are used to it. So yeah. in in France, they have one roundabout per forty five regular intersections. So they are used to. They're actually number one in the world. Um, in in USA, uh, unfortunately, California is actually not the number one. We have Florida that has seven hundred forty nine roundabouts right now. They're number one. California Florida is, is number one, really. Yes. Oh. And um, and California has 481, almost half of Florida. Um, we are number 14 in the country. California is number 14. Yes. But I would I would imagine, just based on our experience, Professor, that um, we're increasing. Uh, this they seem like I said earlier in the last five years, we seem to be putting in more traffic circles. 
We do. Uh, and, okay. and thanks to the recent policy changes in, in most of the state level and the local level transportation officials, we know like we have Slowcog here in our right. county. And, um, and we are thinking deeply about how to make our systems more accessible, more sustainable, more um, uh, efficient in, in that manner. And roundabout, I mean, like our officials are really seriously thinking about changing the way that we feel about transportation system in general and putting in more roundabouts is, is kind of one of the biggest tools that we have. Right? Are roundabouts basically cheaper than a traditional stoplight? So if you look at the life cycle cost, it is. Uh, but when you try to put in a new roundabout, you know, like the roundabouts take up more space. So you need to actually spend a lot more money to the landscaping mm -hmm. and the other construction cost. Right. But the big thing, the beauty of roundabout is that once you build it, it's almost maintenance free. You know, like yeah. for traffic circle, uh, traffic signals, you have to send in the, the technicians almost um, regularly. And because there's a lot of down. expense and it breaks down. They yes, break down. Exactly. Which makes it more dangerous because it's like, whose turn is it? All right, it's our turn to take a break. We'll come back and chat more about transportation with Dr. Tanvir. I'm Dave Congleton. We're live, we're local. This is Hometown Radio. If you're just joining us, uh, we have a first-time guest on this broadcast. Very pleased to be in conversation with Dr. Shams Tanvir. He's Assistant Professor of Transportation at the College of Engineering at Cal Poly. He's been on the Central Coast uh, since 2020. We're getting his thoughts about transportation issues, not just local, but state, national. We can even go international if need be. We start off talking a little bit about traffic circles, roundabouts, but... I want to make the connection to what your passion has been lately, Professor, as we're back with you, and that's the idea of electric vehicles. What's the connection? Why is a transportation guy studying electric cars? That's a great question, Dev. And and so, you know, like transportation is right now the, the largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions in the country. So we have about one-third of the carbon dioxide and the greenhouse gases coming from transportation. And, you know, with this global temperature rising, the, the, the biggest step a state or the federal government can take is actually cut down the energy and emissions consumption from the transportation sector, cut down the fossil fuel use that we have been so accustomed to. And so electric vehicles, the recent development of Teslas and many other electric vehicles actually came in the right moment uh, to kind of rescue us from these big climate change related problems. Uh, so... Um, but the main issues that we have been always facing is that electric vehicles, first of all, are not accessible for everyone. It may be right. expensive. Right. Plus, if, if you have an electric vehicle, let's say, Dave, you live in a multifamily apartment or you live in a, you know, you, you don't have any garage or access to uh, charging equipment. Where do you charge it? Or you are doing a long trip. You don't really know uh, if your car runs out of the battery, where you're going to charge it, right? So there have been a lot of issues that uh, the transportation infrastructure-wise we are putting on for adoption of electric vehicles. So my research have been trying to make sure that this electric vehicle as a mean of cutting down energy and emissions are more accessible, more affordable, and actually uh, in, in general, more integrated with the transportation system of the overall community. I'm going to put you on the spot, though. What are you driving? I am driving a Volkswagen ID4 2021. That's an electric car that the Volkswagen made uh, two years back. Well, now you're a transportation expert. What made you pick a Volkswagen? Uh, I 
for me, you know, like for me, affordability was a big issue. Okay. I, I, I wish I could drive a Tesla, but I couldn't yeah. afford that at that point. Yeah, yeah. And Volkswagen was actually giving us a much sweeter deal because, you know, like if you're driving an electric vehicle, you get almost $7,500 federal tax credit right, right. Yeah, yeah. and you get a lot of local incentives also. So all in all, if you are on the brink of deciding between electric vehicle and a regular vehicle, you should really consider the different incentives that the federal government has. My friend is, uh, I have a friend who's looking at the Bolt, mm-hmm. and she said that they're offering a $7,500 rebate on the Bolt. And, you know, like with the recent changes in the uh, federal government policies regarding electric vehicles, you might actually get eligible up to $12,000 of rebate. Uh, and, and the trick is if the vehicle is made in USA and all the components are coming uh, locally from the country, then you might get the full benefit, whereas imported vehicles might not get the full benefit. So uh, as the transportation expert in this conversation, what's your prediction for the next 10 to 15 years here in California? Because as you know, there are the mandates from Newsom. Yep. Uh, was it two, 2035? Yes. All right. Are we going to make that? So that's that's a, actually the landmark legislation change that Newsom has done. It's never been done anywhere else in the world, and I think California is leading that battle. If you look at the current statistics, that in the USA, the six percent of the total vehicle sale in, in the last year uh, was electric vehicles. Six percent. Six percent. Whereas mm-hmm. in California, we had eighteen percent electric vehicle. And we are actually 42% of the total electric vehicle sell of the overall country. Is in California. In California. And in California, Hmm. we install 79,000 electric vehicle chargers, public chargers. So these are not your home chargers. These are on the streets, uh, available for anyone. And I mean, we are on the path, uh, real good, to, to reach that 2035 mark, but it, it's not going to be very easy. It's, so, I mean, going to maybe 80% or 85% might be easier, but 100%, it's going to be a very difficult task. But 18% of the cars in California are electric. The new cars. New cars. Yes. Right. And that's just going to keep increasing. Exactly. Because the prices are going down. You know, like, Dave, the, it used to be a battery used to cost about uh, $15,000 to $20,000 by itself for yeah. a regular light-duty car. Now the battery costs have been down to almost $10,000, and it's, it's slowly going to go down and down, and it's, it's, it's going to be more affordable. Uh, but in the 30 seconds, are there not environmental consequences using the battery in electric cars? Yes, in the short term, yes, because we are not good at recycling the batteries. We are not go- good at making sure that the batteries have a second life. And the mining is definitely a big uh, concern right now. But it's going to be get, getting better because we are going to get b- new battery chemistries, new batteries, and cheaper batteries. And, and, and I think it's the right way to go because we, we get rid of all these emissions that's coming out of our tailpipe. It's causing asthma. It's causing cancer. All right. We're going to go to California Headline News and ABC Radio News. Craig updates us on time saver traffic and weather together. A reminder, major storm on the way tomorrow. Then uh, we'll continue our conversation with the professor about transportation and invite your thoughts as well. We look forward to hearing from you right here on Hometown Radio.
You have landed on the Dave Congleton Show, always your hometown radio talk show. The mayor of San Luis Obispo, Erica Stewart, joins us tomorrow. Lucy Wickstrom uh, will be featured during the 6 o'clock hour talking about uh, important museums across the country. First-time guest on this broadcast as we continue our conversation with Dr. Shams Tanvir, Assistant Professor of Transportation at the College of Engineering at Cal Poly. He knows transportation. We have been talking about traffic circles and roundabouts and electric cars and the future of transportation in this county and the state. If you want to join us, please do. 805-543-8830 or 800-549-5832. We start with Barry in San Luis on KVEC. Hi, Barry. Hi, Dave. Hi, Barry. Happy um, New Year. Hello, uh, Professor. Hi. Uh, I guess I guess we haven't met yet, but uh, quite quite interested in the topic of electric vehicles. As, as Dave will know, I've I've been on the show talking about electric vehicles myself. Okay. Um, and uh, you mentioned uh, the the problem of people that are. Renters lives in apartments, and I'm I'm curious as to, you know, uh, what uh, what the alternative there is. I, I've been thinking that the 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 best way to go about making uh, charges available for those people is to is to have uh, employers workplaces to install them at at workplaces so that they they can they can charge when they're when they're working. And uh, I would really like to see that take off in San Luis Obispo. There's only about three or four places that provide for employees here, but uh, I think every workplace uh, should provide electric vehicle charging for their employees. Let's see what the professor says. Yeah, absolutely, Barry. Absolutely, I, I agree with you. That's the best way. If the the best place for you to have a charger is your home, because you know you're not using your car for maybe half the time. Like even if you are using like maybe one third of the time during a day. But if not, then the next best place to put in the charger is your workplace, because that's where you spend most of your time. Yeah, but if I'm an employer, how much is that going to cost me? How much is a charger going to cost me to put in? That's that varies, you know, you know, Dave. Because if you are an employer and you have a very antiquated traffic, uh, the the electricity grid system, putting in a new uh, electric vehicle chargers would would take you a lot of money to actually revamp the wiring and everything, and it's mm. going to be expensive. Mm. Whereas if you have a new building or new facility, that might might not be nothing. But we do have alternative. I mean. Uh, there are several levels of charging that are yeah. available for electric vehicles. So level one, uh, you can just plug in your car to the regular 110-volt uh, line mm. in your home. You don't have to go through all seven. Exactly. <laughs> all right, Barry, what else do you want to say? Well, I also wanted to add that there are some uh, incentive programs for uh, employers to tap into to actually get their charger uh installation subsidize uh i think uh, pg&e and and our local utility 3ce also has some programs and i, I think there's some other ones out there as well so uh apcd i know has has a program so i think uh workplace charging is is uh, something that that every everybody that owns a workplace everybody that owns a business that employs people should should consider and uh and uh, look into the incentives available to help you do that. I think we have uh, next, your next guest speaker for the Slow Climate Coalition. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I'll connect you guys. All right, Barry, thank you. Anything else you'd say to Barry, Professor? 
Oh, Barry, yeah, uh, I absolutely agree because all these employers, you know, like with this sustainability trend and this climate accountability, employers also need to report uh, how much emissions and uh, GHG emissions is coming from commute traffic, you know, like if they can make sure that they have enough chargers, that actually helps them, makes them look good. 805-543-8830. Mark is in San Luis. Hi, Mark. Hi, I have a question. Uh, it's a great show, great topic. Um, Professor, I, I understand the need and the innovation for transportation, but if you look at the existing transportation system, such as BART, it's had a 15% decline in ridership because of crime and filth on the trains, and they've lost millions on their evening and weekend ridership. Okay, just and, and they were going to expand from livermore to pleasanton 12 miles above ground they own the ground it went from 200 million to a billion dollars and they had to scrap it okay set that one aside now you take the bullet train which i think everyone can agree was one of the most poorly planned and managed programs so you as an you as a civil engineer what are you going to do you can come up with all the good thoughts that you want but california has a failure to execute Mm. And and I just how how would you overcome that? And, and dare I ask, Professor, did you support the bullet train? Do you support it? I would say it it, it depends. I, I I don't directly support it because I think we are not at that point to have a profitable and viable connection right now. But in future, with the way our our population growth is happening, we need viable alternatives because we know. Our, our our domestic flight situation is not really great, and the prices are going up. Right. Like you want to go from San Diego to San Jose? Uh, what are your options? Right yeah. now? Anything else but in terms of Mark's point that you'd address? I, I I think in terms of public transportation, Mark, I think it's 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 a very um, uh, sensitive issues in California and across the country because public transportation, you know, like involves a lot of stakeholders. And um, there are actually examples of properly executed public transportation projects, and and they are getting profitable, getting more and more riders. Such as? Such as um, you you look at the examples in Chicago, you look at examples of New York City. um, The the LM Metro actually have been doing much better than um, what Mark mentioned. BART used to be our poster child of public transportation in California, but LM Metro is catching up. So. I mean, we could do a good job. COVID was a big uh, wrench into the whole system because, you know, like we lost a lot of, lot of people just because people are not really comfortable getting into a uh, bus full of people. But sure. it, it's getting better and it's going to get better. Um, but yeah. again, it's, it's the matter of how we executed this project. What else, Mark? Uh, just one other thing. I, I, I just in California, uh, we're losing enough employers. Uh, now, but I, I, you know, I, I, I really hesitate to keep throwing more requirements on such as charging stations because a lot of employers downtown, they don't control parking. The majority of them don't that employ people because it's, you know, so I, I just think we need to be careful about more mandates in California. Anyway, I'll listen. It's a great yeah. show. Thank All right, you. Mark, thanks for being part of it. Any comment on that, Professor? I think the, it, it's it's not a one uh, entity job. It needs to be the government, the people, the employers. Everyone is together in this. And I mean, it's uh, we need to be thinking about all these side effects. Um, it's, it's possible that it might cause some issues. Eight zero five five four three eight eight three zero. We talk about electric cars and traffic circles and the future of transportation. 
Bob is in San Luis. Hi, Bob. Hi, Dave. Hi, Professor. Hi, Bob. Hello. You, Professor, you mentioned uh, electric vehicles before, and I agree. I think electric vehicles are the uh, propulsion of the future for either buses or transportation for people in private cars, as well as I really like to see electric buses and electric garbage trucks and uh, delivery vehicles. My concern is autonomous driving. I, I'm on a vigorous online debate with a few people right now, and I'm saying it's just not going to work. Dri- driverless cars. Be. That's oh yeah. Uh, it's, self-driving uh, vehicles. It, it, it's just so many topics that I'm interested about combined together. Let me put your point, the first to the, the heavy-duty vehicle electrification. You know, like the, the biggest polluter right now, even though heavy-duty vehicles are all less than 10% of our total traffic, they are actually one-third of the overall greenhouse gas emissions that comes from our transportation system. So it's, it's hugely important. If you want to make our transportation cleaner, we need to do heavy-duty vehicle electrification. But you need, to, you need to install large batteries, and that means large prices for these vehicles. And it's not affordable for if you are a small transit agency, if you are a very small uh, truck operator or even a municipal, you, you don't have that much money at hand to get all your vehicles upgraded to electric system. Plus, you don't have enough in- infrastructure there, too. So I, I, I would say is that it's the matter of time that we are going to go into more heavy-duty vehicle electrification. So I did a project back in 2021 with Port of Los Angeles and Port of Long Beach, where they're looking at the feasibility of converting their dredge trucks to uh, all electrics. And it's it's actually possible that 95% of their entire truck fleet system can be converted to electrified, uh, electric vehicles. So it's it's possible, but the, the cost is actually the biggest concern here. Bob? Yeah, the, uh, I, I do agree, and I, I think that... Uh, once the delivery trucks and the service trucks are electrified and we have the capacity to support them grid-wise, uh, I, I'm still more concerned about uh, the idea of the autonomous driving. I, I just don't see how it's ever going to work unless we have near-supercomputers because there are so many variables when you're out on the road. It's not like a spacecraft once it's out in outer space, there's not much to worry about. On the road, in addition to pedestrians and vehicle traffic and bicyclists and road conditions and weather and safety vehicles, there's just too much there to figure to make this thing work properly. But, but in my safe. Bob, thanks for calling in. My question, Professor, is that with self-driving cars, is it like a hybrid where you have the option to decide whether or not you want to drive it or not? So SAE defines five levels of self-driving. So level five means you don't have any control over the car. But what Tesla and other cars provide right now is either level two or level three, where it's kind of, it's a driver assistive system, right? So I think, Bob, to your uh, question, I mean, for, for trucks or garbage trucks, things like that, we might see more driver assistive systems 
uh, in these electric trucks in the near term or in the mid term. And I agree with you, getting like to the level five level of autonomous driving is going to be really challenging. You know, like Google, uh, um, General Motors and the big auto manufacturers are putting in almost trillions of dollars right now to, to get the perfect self-driving car, but no one has the, the right answer yet. So I, I don't think in the short term, like, uh, within 2050, there is going to be a viable solution that's going to be on your road that that you can fully trust without any external supervision. All right, we'll come back for a final segment as we talk about uh, transportation. Lucy Wickstrom talks museums during the 6 o'clock hour. We are in our final segment with Dr. Shams Tanvir, Assistant Professor of Transportation in the College of Engineering at Cal Poly, making his first appearance on this broadcast. We've just been talking about transportation and traffic circles and electric cars, ride sharing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you want in on this conversation, we need to hear from you now, please. 805-543-8830. Or toll-free at 800-549-5832. On the Stolberg Law text line, listener wants me to ask your opinion of electric bikes. Electric bikes, I I, I would say it's it's kind of, um, we didn't expect that there is be so much popularity of electric bikes. And the COVID was one of the reasons people were buying electric bikes to such an extent that sure. there was a shortage of electric bikes at some point. You have to be like ordering electric bikes five months ahead or six months ahead sometime. But now the supply chain issues have settled down and we feel like that some of the families are thinking about getting rid of their second car maybe to to have an electric bike. They're they're getting their the kids drop at school, going to the uh, like you mentioned, going to the grocery store and the, the the other nearby places using electric bikes. So I would say the best thing about electric bikes is that you know it's uh, it's zero emissions first of all um it's using electric energy uh, instead of your manual exertion or your manual biking so for places that has rolling uh terrain like san luis obispo it's it's kind of a um no brainer that people elderly people people are that are not that fit to actually do biking on a regular basis they might choose electric bike. All right, let's take another call. We have Lance in San Luis on KVEC. Hi, Lance. Dave, how you doing tonight? Good. Happy New Year. Happy you New Year, Craig. Lance. Thank you. So, you know, uh, one of the things that, one of the issues that I have with electric vehicles is the, I would like to see a, uh, and this would go on all vehicles, even electric bikes, you could do this, is the carbon footprint to produce it and the carbon footprint to generate to, uh, you know, with an electric vehicle, you know, the, we're using roughly 25% here in California, uh, electricity is produced by fossil fuels. So that should be added into kind of like our mileage, our, our uh, you know, mileage uh, that we've always had. I'd like to see a carbon footprint uh, put on all vehicles in pro- for production and for the life of a car for, say, let's say five years. Hmm. Because one of the problems that I have is the way we measure emissions is if I ride a horse, that's more polluting by the way we measure than if I drive an electric car. Well, let's get a response. 
Yep. So um, I, I would agree that we are not doing as much good job as when we are saying these are ZEVs or zero emissions vehicle. That's not 100% true. It's actually, it's not true at all because you are creating emissions from other places. And, you know, like the, the issue of how much emissions for riding one mile in your electric car or your bike, it's happening. It's not that straightforward uh, because, you know, even during the time of the uh, during the entire course of the day, your the mix of renewable energy that's coming from, let's say, wind power or solar power that fluctuates in the daytime. You have a lot of uh, solar power production. Then you might be using a lot less amount of uh, fossil fuel to create your electricity, whereas at night, it might be different. So actually, the answer varies. And because of these nuances, we don't have actually a straightforward answer of how much energy is consumed in terms of creating that electricity that you need to put in your car. But we know. Well, you, mm-hmm. well one thing is we, we have standards for our mileage when, you know, it's like, what's this car rated? Oh, 26 in the city and 35 in the, in the, uh, on the highway. And, and it's based on uh, an uh, algorithm that says this size car, this is it, this is it. We could do the same thing based on our energy mix saying on average mm-hmm. here in the United States and here in California, because we know what our, our average uh, production of electricity by fossil fuels is like for every uh, three quarters of a mile that you drive, that's going to produce, you know, you, that three-quarters of a mile was produced with fossil fuels, yep. and that's got to add to your carbon footprint. That's a very simple algorithm that, that could be come up with and put it on a sticker like we have right mm-hmm. now with our, our uh, you know, gas uh, mileage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people are and, going and to... I'd li- and I'd love sure. to see that because I think more people would start realizing that a zero-emission car really isn't a zero-emission. There are consequences. There are. And, and, yeah. and absolutely, if, if you drive a car in, in let's say, Nebraska, if you drive a car in uh, Michigan versus California, it's different, but it's also possible to actually get a number. And I think the more and more, you know, like that we are getting used to these electric vehicles, you're going to see this information available outside. So National Renewable Energy Laboratory up in Denver, Colorado, they have done some great work. They actually have a website where I can go and look up. How much is the carbon footprint for uh, reducing um, the the or, or producing the energy in in different states in United uh, in our country? So uh, I think you're going to see more and more of this. All right, uh, Lance, thank you. Eight zero five five four three eight eight three zero. If you want in on this conversation with Dr. Tanvir as we talk about transportation, we have a couple of minutes left, Professor. So what about bike lanes? I guess the takeaway is we better get ready for more of them. That's the future. Well, you know, bike lanes, the idea is you, you give the, the, the bicycle, the, the users of these bicycles kind of a separate space to ride on uh, that is away, more, much and much away from the dangerous the vehicles, the other, other on vehicles uh, uh, type of uh, facilities. So um, we, we're going to see more separated facilities in terms of bike lanes. Uh, that Those are our class one and class three bike facilities. Mm-hmm. These are going to be much more separated. So I think we are going to see more and more bike facilities in future where uh, the school children and the elderly, the people who are not right now riding their bikes, including the people who just bought these new e-bikes are going to be encouraged to use them. So shouldn't bicycles be paying more, more of their share for all this, for all these improvements? 
That's uh, tax I, on bicycles, something. <laughs> I I would not want to do that because for me, uh, I, because I I, am, I care about the energy and emissions from the transportation, and I feel like bicycle and and this pedestrian, all these other modes, these are the true zero emissions modes. And I know you live in San Luis, so you must have been spending time downtown. What do you make of the new downtown? They've clearly de-emphasized cars, right? putting up one-way streets and closing this street. That's the future of the downtown. Well, and for transportation, I'm going to think you like that. I have a mixed feeling about that. I, okay. I, I, as, as someone doing transportation research, I am, I am in big favor of giving people options. So if you want to provide people with better bicycle facilities, I am all in for that. But if... Some people, let's say, uh, they don't really have a good access to the downtown itself using their bikes. How they're, they're not going to be comfortable using their bikes to the downtown, and therefore excluding them and then uh, dis- disincentivizing the car users in downtown, that's going to cause an issue for all of us. Is there a country we should be more like tr- from a transportation point of view? I think... Um, for for a while, we have been following kind of a more uh, decentralized, more suburban uh, development. And I think that's going to, we know that it's going to cause a lot of uh, congestions, a lot more vehicle traffic on the roads. And I think uh, some countries in Europe, including the Netherlands, and uh, like you mentioned, Iceland also, they're doing much better job in, in terms of controlling the amount of car traffic they have on the road. Uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, the more vehicle miles traveled that we have, that's the biggest issue that we're going to tackle. Well, uh, Dr. Tanvir, I so enjoyed the conversation, I, and but we ran out of time. I want you to come back and uh, talk more about your lab that you have set up on campus and the research that you're doing. So yes. I look forward to that conversation. Yes, I, I, I hope to come back again, and I'd definitely love to talk about Sumo Lab, our lab in Cal Poly. All right, sir. Thank you for your time. Off we go. we got news and traffic and weather. Lucy Wickstrom shares her favorite museums. You're listening to Hometown Radio. The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911.